Introducing True Crime PI, an investigative bi-weekly podcast that explores missing and unidentified cold cases from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Dana Pohl. I am a writer and a librarian with a passion for investigating the missing and unidentified. Our life stories begin at birth and end with death, but the stories of the missing and unidentified are disrupted by a mysterious occurrence that obscures the who, what, when, and why. Without the answers to these questions, the missing and unidentified remain in limbo, waiting for someone to write the ending of their stories. My hope is that collectively, we can be that someone. Welcome to True Crime PI, Episode 3, Missing Evidence, featuring retired Cobb County cold case detective John Dawes. This episode of True Crime PI is Part 3 of NamUs Case, UP10724, Cobb County, Georgia, May 10, 1984. If you haven't listened to Episodes 1 and 2, please do. I promise Episode 3 will be worth the wait. In Episode 2, Detective Dawes shared his extensive background and experiences with us. He established his credibility and expertise as a homicide detective and as the leader of the Cobb County Cold Case Unit. But more than that, we learned that Detective Dawes is a humble man who believes that it takes dedication and hard work to solve a homicide. As they say, timing is everything. I think we all can agree that the times were not on our Doe's side. The fact that her skeletal remains were discovered in 1984, when DNA testing was not readily available, the FDA did not require the tracking of medical devices, and police departments did not employ forensic artists, gave us insight into why the original investigators could not solve this case. As if these challenges were not enough, we now know that the blue t-shirt that Detective Dawes strongly believes would have male DNA on it is missing. Unfortunately, it is not the only piece of evidence that is missing. At one time, there was a tremendous volume of evidence. The clothing, hair, cigarettes, hand-rolled cigarettes. Um, There was a lot to work with. Unfortunately, it wasn't evidence that much could be done with in 1984. Now, you can do a lot with that evidence. And so I began the process of trying to find it. Was it at the GBI crime lab? Was it at the Cobb County Police Department? Was it at the Cobb County Medical Examiner's Office? I had already formulated what could be done with it, uh, the testing that I would request. I ended up finding one sock that had been on her left foot, and I found uh, one boot. Both of those pieces of evidence were at the medical examiner's office. And in a a complete effort to just try anything, I made sure that those two pieces of evidence were tested. I, I sent them to a private lab whose technology and uh, abilities 
to analyze evidence for DNA far exceeded um, state crime labs and, and other labs that I was aware of. I sent the evidence there, and both pieces were negative for any DNA. I know that that blue shirt would have male DNA. That blue Playboy T-shirt between her legs would have male DNA. I know that, but I can't find it. Um, there's no official disposition paperwork anywhere, but the evidence is just gone. The evidence is just gone. I know what you are thinking. What does he mean, just gone? How does evidence disappear? Your frustration is coming through loud and clear. In a future episode, Detective Dawes will answer these questions. But for now, let's take a look at the medical devices. We looked into the medical examiner's report, which detailed the injuries that she had. We looked at the fact that she had some pre-existing injuries that were surgically changed in the past. We looked at those pieces that were um, surgically implanted in one of her orbits. We looked at um, hardware that was in one of her ankles. Unfortunately, there were no markings on that hardware that would tell us anything about where they came from, when the surgery occurred, or where it occurred. Now, there's a, a lot better system for hardware that's used in surgery, and it can be identified and, and help positively identify the person those pieces are found in. So uh, we struck out there, but the case is still workable. I, I view every case as being solvable. You just have to be willing to figure it out. In baseball and in criminal investigations, striking out is disappointing. My belief that anything is possible took a hard knock when Detective Dawes explained that the only evidence he could find was a single boot and one sock. The missing evidence has crippled this investigation. Without this evidence, there is no hope of forensically identifying her killer. I have to admit that the medical devices did seem like a long shot, but my hopes sunk when Detective Dawes indicated that he could not find any identifying marks on these devices. When you run into dead end after dead end, it is frustrating, but Detective Dawes reminds us that the case is still workable and solvable. Holding on to hope that George, the man who worked at Doug Hyde Unlimited, was still a potential lead, I asked Detective Dawes what he found when he investigated George. One of the shirts that was found just laying on top of the body is uh, a work shirt, and it had a company name on one side of the chest, and it had a first name of a male on the other side of the chest. Um, detectives in the initial investigation in 1984 actually interviewed someone from the company, and they actually interviewed the man who wore that shirt while he was working there. His employment didn't last that long. Uh, he denied any culpability or knowing anything about the crime. Those detectives just didn't have anywhere else to go with him at the moment. Um, so I dug in. And what I found out is that this man, whose full name I won't say for the sake of the investigation, but 
He has zero criminal history, never been arrested. He's now in his late 60s. For a man to commit a sexually motivated homicide and then 40 years later to have never done it again is not plausible. These people don't stop. Um, Not all of them get caught, but they just don't stop. And so we did a lot of work on documenting George, where he's at now in his stage of life, where he lives, what he does, what successes he's had, um, what his family life looks like on paper, who all of his relatives are. We did a lot of work. We found out that the company, Doug Hyde Unlimited, uh, when someone would terminate their employment, the work clothing would just go to the nearest thrift store. So anybody could have picked that stuff up. And it's not something that's out of the realm of possibility. So uh, a refreshed contact and interview with this man would not have been a step that I wanted to take at the stage of the investigation we were at. If I go talk to somebody and I have nothing, they can see that. So I was wanting to continue to work the case and try to build the case from another line and then go at him at another time if if that's where I was still directed. In episode one, I mentioned that our Doe may have picked up the work shirt with George's name on it at a secondhand store. From what we have learned, this now seems highly probable. And as I had hoped, George did get a second look but there was nothing in his background to warrant an interview. It is painfully obvious to me that an investigator must possess a great deal of patience and restraint. The sad truth is, even after an exhaustive investigation, the unit could not solve this case. But they didn't give up. They kept trying. Detective Dawes and his team of volunteers used their extensive network of contacts to aid in the search for a missing persons report that might lead to the identification of our Doe. This young lady is still a victim whose killer has never been identified. And even more sadly, she's a young lady who who has never been identified. Her parents don't know. Any siblings that she had don't know. We did searches through several different agencies. This area where her body was found is on the line. It's very, it's inside Cobb County, right next door to Fulton County, right next door to the city of Atlanta. So we did searches, requesting searches. We did uh, a lot of work with, with contacts. One of the good things about having a bunch of old people around volunteering their time is they have innumerable contacts with agencies throughout Metro Atlanta. So we called on a lot of people to try to help us locate a missing person report from that time frame, and we never came across it. One of the reasons is because since 1984, every agency in America has upgraded their databases. Some still have microfilm, but you have to be looking for a specific date to find a report. That was another avenue that we went down that just came to, uh, for the time being, a dead end. We could never get to a point that we could identify her. And um, that's just kind of where the case stands at this point. This breaks my heart. I appreciate Detective Dawes' willingness to answer my questions. But to be honest, I really don't like the answers. Every single potential lead has been explored, and yet she still remains unidentified. The question that no one has been able to answer is who was our Doe 
And how did she end up in a wooded area in southwest Cobb County? The Marietta Daily Journal article I mentioned in Episode 1 indicated that investigators believed that our Doe was a sex worker, but no further explanation was given. I wanted to know what led investigators to this theory, so I asked Detective Dawes to explain. The uh, initial investigation in 1984 by detectives with the Cobb County Police Department was pretty well documented, and those investigators theorized that our victim likely came out of some kind of adult industry. From what I can see and what I'm led to believe by their reporting is the way she was clothed. There were, there were no undergarments. Those could have been taken by the suspect and discarded someplace else. But she was dressed in a pair of jeans that I never could figure out. There's a partial name of the brand uh, along the belt line that's just partial. And I've done hours and hours and hours of research trying to identify that brand, and I just can't get there. I'm not able to figure it out. That might help us figure out where those jeans were being sold at the time. Some other things that kind of pointed to the possibility that she was involved as an entertainer, a dancer, is because of where her body was found. Uh, She was within miles, just a few miles, of Fulton Industrial Boulevard, where there were two strip clubs at the time. Every hotel in that area was pretty much a brothel. It's overpopulated with prostitutes and pimps and drugs. That's the main thing thing for uh, that area. So where her body was at and the way she was dressed kind of led the initial investigation to think that that was the most likely uh, scenario, that she had been picked up along Fulton Industrial Boulevard someplace. After looking at the case multiple times, and I I didn't read through this case and study through this case and, and work on this case once, just like any other case. I've been through it 15 times at least trying to figure out everything. But I would have to agree that this is not some woman who was grabbed out of her home, raped and murdered and left dumped in this area. I think that a case like that in 1984 would have generated a lot more attention, a lot more media, and there would have been some more to fall back on. A a more local victim gives you a, a more local and better investigation. So If she's out there on Fulton Industrial Boulevard, for instance, as a prostitute or someone with a substance abuse history or anything in that realm uh, of lifestyle, then it's less likely that her loved ones knew where she was at. It's less likely that a missing person report was even filed. And that's more likely in this case. The clothing she was wearing the assumption that she was not wearing undergarments, and the location where she was found led the original investigators to believe that she was most likely a sex worker. Detective Dawes agrees. The fact that a matching missing persons report could not be found tells us that she may have been from another state. It also leads me to believe that she might have been a runaway. It was interesting to hear that Detective Dawes spent hours researching her genes, but like so many of us, he also came up empty. Since beginning my research on this case, I have thought that if I could just see these genes in person, I could find a match. And then, as I was reading the autopsy report, 
I came upon a hand-drawn image of the label of her genes. Dr. Burton knew that protocol would require that actual photos of these genes be taken, but he took the time to sketch what he saw before him. His hand-drawn label reads, S, A, blank, E, space, blank, O, N, C, blank, Z. True Crime PIs, keep searching. If we can unravel this mystery, maybe, just maybe, we can discover where our doe was living prior to her death. Speaking of her death, we know that the condition of her body obscured an official determination, but Dr. Burton's report does offer a possible cause. Quote, Preliminary autopsy does not disclose any severe traumatic injuries that might have been the cause of her death, such as skull fractures, recent facial fractures, injuries to the thorax or abdomen that might have caused bone injury. There is no evidence of metal fragments which might have been left from a gunshot wound. There is no evidence of defects in the bone noted at this time that might have been caused by a cutting instrument. Because of the circumstances in which the deceased was found, i.e., body apparently disposed of in a wooded, secluded area of the county, and because of the partial nudity of her body and the disarray of clothing, and because of the apparent age of the individual and lack of severe medical problems in this age group, it seems more probable that her manner of death was foul play. At this time, our office is carrying the case as a homicide with an undetermined cause of death. Affixial deaths are the predominant type found in such cases. Based on this information, the cause of our doe's death was most likely manual strangulation. In episode one, I used the phrase, so many clues, so few answers. Two episodes later, I feel like we have all the answers, but very few clues. Wasn't I the one who said that this case felt really solvable? Sadly, much of what I hoped would lead to the resolution of this case has led us straight back to square one. But there is one avenue we have yet to pursue. Genetic genealogy. I asked Detective Dawes about the potential of using genetic genealogy to identify our doe and was surprised to learn that he had partnered with the DNA detective herself, Cece Moore, to solve a crime. Genetic genealogy is fascinating. And let me share this first. I, I was working on a serial rapist from 1999, and I was at the same time working on a 1972 kidnapping, rape, murder of a nine-year-old girl in the city of Marietta. I saw some things about genetic genealogy. I did some study on uh, C.C. Moore, who has done such a tremendous job as a spokesperson. So I, I, I reached out to her and uh, threw a lot of questions by her. She was excited immediately. So um, I got both of those cases submitted the 1972 case, which had gone through an immeasurable amount of work, now has a full male profile. 
for the man who raped and murdered her. He's not identified yet, but that case is so close to being solved that it's crazy, and it's because of genetic genealogy. The 1999 serial rapist, according to the GBI crime lab, had committed three rapes. All male DNA from the three victims was from the same contributor. I provided them, C.C. Moore and, and the lab, with brief summaries of all three rapes, how they occurred, um, how they were similar, and the basic description that I had of this offender. He was probably mid to late 20s, a black male, six foot tall. That's literally what I gave them. After 30 days, uh, they contacted me, said, we, we don't see this a whole lot, but we've completed the, the first portion, and we know a lot about ancestry. So we'll tell you that, that we think that we can do a lot with this case because it's odd genetic combinations of African and from the islands, Jamaican, Caribbean. And I fell out of my chair. I fell out of my chair because I hadn't told them that all three victims said their rapist spoke with an island accent. That was overwhelming to me about the quality of the work that's being done and what's possible. So in that 1999 serial rapist case, we got there. We identified him, and that case was handled. With this case, we don't have suspect DNA. We can't, there's no possibility of determining a suspect from male DNA contributed by the, the suspect. But what we do have is the work that was done in the original autopsy in 1984, those body fluids and tissue that were, and bone that were um, examined and submitted for DNA profile, and we have this unidentified female's DNA profile to some extent. It's not a complete and full 16-marker genetic profile, but we do have at least a partial profile, and that profile has been in NamUs for years. It's also been in CODIS, the Combined DNA Index system for years in the event anything comes up to match it. What needs to be done now is that partial profile that's known to be of the victim needs to go in for genetic genealogy. It's a very expensive procedure, but it's not done by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. It's not done by state agencies. You have to utilize the private lab. If there is any chance that relatives of this victim have been curious about their own ancestry and submitted their DNA for for that analysis, then we're going to get a familial match to who this unidentified woman is. We would figure it out with some luck. We would figure it out who she is. And that's a part of the case that's, uh, that's crucial in trying to get to who she was in 1984, where she would have been, what she was doing. How did she get these injuries to her left ankle and to her eye socket? What was going on in her life? If we had that victimology, 
we're a step closer to figuring out who did it. Detective Dawes is a homicide and cold case investigator who has spent his life hunting down murderers. I am a writer, a librarian, and a podcaster who would like nothing more than to provide answers to her family. It is not easy for either of us to accept that her killer may never be found, but we will never stop trying to identify her. Our hope is that someday soon, a team of genetic genealogists will take her case, identify her family, and finally, after 36 years, give her back her name. Next time on True Crime P.I. Over the course of four decades and across 19 states, the deadliest serial killer in U.S. history left a trail of nearly 100 victims. Although he was arrested several times and linked to sexual assaults, attempted murders, and actual murders, he was, for one reason or another, repeatedly released to kill again. This man, now 80 years old, believes he was able to avoid a conviction for so many years because he targeted women who were sex workers and drug addicts. In his mind, these women were low risk because they were less likely to be missed. In 2014, his luck ran out. He was finally convicted for the murders of three young women in the late 80s. In episode four, which will be released in early January 2021, Detective Dawes discusses this killer and his possible connection to our doe. The most potential suspect in this case came to light in 2018-2019, and that is Samuel Little. I don't think we'll ever understand how many victims he has on his name. Um, and and the, the style of the case, the type of the case, where she was found, how she was found, the most likely cause of death being uh, manual asphyxiation, everything points to Samuel Little's signature. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter, like our True Crime PI Facebook page, and join our Facebook group to discuss and crowdsource the cases featured in each episode. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it. If you don't, we would love to hear your suggestions. Thank you for listening. True Crime PI is written and edited by Dana Pohl. Theme music, CD Streets, and Come Out and Play, written and performed by the very talented Darren Curtis at darrencurtismusic.com.